You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Turn to Jonah 3 if you would with me. Before we begin, I just, Lord reminded me of something that happened, um, and I just want to share this, this encouragement with the parents. Um, it was actually 2015 that I was working at Lifeline Youth and Family Services, um, and I had brought a group of boys. It was at my first week there. I was working weekends. I brought, brought a group of boys in, and we were sitting in one of the front rows, and uh, one of the boys, 12-year-old, just, he decided he was going to go crazy. Uh, that, that that and there, if you don't know what Lifeline is, they they deal with uh, with young kids who've gotten in trouble with the law in one way or another. So this kid goes starts going crazy, and I I, I don't know what to do. It's my first week there, so I start trying to physically remove this kid from the room, and I'm humiliated. But it was one of the most important moments in my first days here at church because instead of people being upset with me. Um, I had two people meet me outside that door and help and show grace. So, I mean, it's, it's awesome to have the kids in here with us this morning. And, you know, sitting for a long time, it's hard for me to do. So, if you see a family, um, you know, just use this opportunity to show grace and love to families. It's, we're, we are setting an example, you know, for students here. Um, for kids, uh, for each other, and use this opportunity to show grace. I just want to offer that encouragement. That just came to my mind. Um, I, I wanted to offer that encouragement to us this morning and to say, families with uh, with kids, we're so we are genuinely like, as a congregation, glad you we're we're worshiping together this morning. All right, Jonah three. Jonah three is a miraculous presentation of the gospel. I mean, it's the climax of this story. This is the the repentance of Nineveh. And there's so many levels on which this repentance is absolutely mind-bogglingly miraculous in ways. I I think as you look, you'll be like me and you'll say, I I actually have trouble believing this. I I think you will be as challenged as I am. you You literally have trouble believing the words that are on the page. Let's read Jonah 3. Hopefully you're there. It said, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then the word of the Lord, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation, uh, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone t- 
turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word. Okay, first level, which this is an absolute mind-blowing miracle. Listen to this in Jonah 4. End of Jonah 4, it says, And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, which in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? <laughs> then listen to verse 5. This is what it says. They all put on sackcloth and ashes from the grace of them to the least. That's, that's a way to say all of them. That's 120,000 people. I mean, think about this. Think about this. Right now there's like 300 people incarcerated in Kosciuszko County Jail, right? Something like that. Paul will probably come and correct me or something afterwards. But there's 120,000, or there's, there's 300 people in there. Let's say you go through like a third of the prison and you say, if you don't accept Jesus, you're, gonna, you're doomed. And then you leave. And then you hear the next day, everybody in the whole jail believes. That would be amazing to you for, on a number of levels. Like, even if, you, even if you went to a VBS with 300 people, you would be mind blown if every single kid believes. This is not 300. This is not 3,000. This is 120,000 people. And if you're like me, you might like try to put a footnote there like, okay, maybe God just spared 120,000 people from wrath. But what, is it, what does it say? Does it give any clarification like that? Why do I assume that? Is it because I don't believe that God can save 120,000 people in a day? He's showing, God is showing right off the bat, I am doing something so miraculous, you don't believe it. I can save as many people as I want. Right now. Overnight, from a lame proclamation. I'll talk about how lame the proclamation was. But let's talk about the Ninevites. Let's talk about the Ninevites. Like, as I've been studying for this, obviously Nineveh was a terrible city. You read Jonah 1-2, one, it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Why? For their evil has come up before me. It was so evil that, that I mean, there's like two times in the whole Bible that God is like saying, yeah, I'm going to de- obliterate this city because they're so evil. That's not a small deal, that how evil they are. Like, people say, you know, as you study the Assyrians, like, that Nineveh was like Sin City, which would draw comparisons to Las Vegas, but, I mean, I'm sure there's a a million deplorable things going on in Las Vegas, but that comparison is not even anywhere accurate. Like, that's not anywhere close. A more accurate comparison would be to the terrorist group ISIS, and... You, that, I mean, I'm not going to go into details. Obviously, there's kids in here. I don't want to talk about that. You, this well document what the, the atrocious things that the, the violence that's been going on there. But even that isn't really an accurate comparison because as you study ancient Syria, they were like the most violent and brutal people you can imagine. If you can put something violent and brutal in your head to do to something, they've done it. They did it. They. They, they took joy in doing it in new, creative ways. They bragged about it throughout all their history books, about the terrible ways and the terrible things they did to people. And think about this. The Assyrian Empire spanned over 
multiple countries in over hundreds of years, but it was at this point in time and in this specific city of that evil empire that God decides to call out. So of everything you can find about all the evils of Assyria, the hotbed was at this moment in this city. That's how evil these people were. Atrocious. Unbelievably evil. And if you're like me, there's people in your life that you can think about that you're like, there is no way they can ever come. That person, that's, there's no way. I can not even know if I could say it to them without them doing something crazy. But there's, there's people in your mind you know that they're like, yeah, okay, that's nice to say that they could be saved, but I really don't believe they could be saved. And God wants to show you that there's nobody like that. There's nobody who's too far beyond. If you have somebody like that in your mind, you can, you can tell yourself your mind is lying to you. Your mind does not understand how powerful God is to save someone. And I, you know what? I have somebody in my mind like that. That I have to fight against knowing that if they could be saved or not. There's, not. there's nobody like that. That's a miracle in Jonah 3. Another miracle is just how awful this proclamation is. Like, that, let me, follow me with me, right? So Jonah goes one day's journey into a city that it takes three days to get across. And what's his message? He says, yet 40 days Nineveh shall be overthrown. You might be saying like, oh, maybe that's what God told him. That's, maybe that's all he needed to do. Maybe, you know, maybe it was only one day's time it took. Maybe it's not that lame a proclamation. I know that on many levels that's wrong because clearly Jonah's heart has not changed. We see that in the next chapter. His heart's in the wrong place. He's just doing it because a, a fish literally spat him out at Nineveh and said, you have to, do, you know, like, he tried to run away as hard as he could. This was not his calling. Jonah was not, Jonah would not have said, yeah, I'm really gifted as a missionary. No, he would have been like, no, that's not my gift. That's somebody else's. I'm not called to the Ninevites. No, I do not. I can't, I can't really deal with those people. That, like, he would have given every excuse. He did. He ran in the opposite direction. Like, he did not want to go. He was unwilling. But even in his complete unwillingness and acting upon his unwillingness, God used that mouthpiece to proclaim to Nineveh. He used that mouthpiece. Not a different one. That one. Because he wanted to show his power in using, in spite of, you know, the giftedness or the talent. You know, I think we think about gifts in a, in a really kind of man-centered way a lot of times. When you equate your gifts with your own personal talents or your own desires of what you like to do, how is that? Is that what we see in the Bible? I mean, go through an example of people you see making big impacts, that God makes big impacts during the Bible. And you'll see that most of them are called to do something that is like the opposite of who they are. And it's to show how weak they are and how strong the Lord is. And Jonah is a prime time example of that because he is running from God and he gives this lame effort. You know, but you know what is present in Jonah's proclamation? The word of the Lord. It says the word of the Lord came to Nineveh, or to, to Jonah. The word of the Lord, there's things we know about the word of the Lord. And one thing is that in 11.55, or Isaiah 55.11, it says... The word of the Lord doesn't return void. If it has a purpose, it goes out and it accomplishes it. That God, when he calls someone, he doesn't fail. God does not fail. He get, that when his word goes out, it accomplishes what it does. And he wants it to be perfectly clear that it's not because Jonah was so good or because the people were so ready to be receptive. 
but it's because it was his word and his message that was reaching their hearts. That is a miracle. And it's undisputed that it's only God working in that. There's, he's left no other option for us to see. Then there's the repentance of Nineveh. It says in 3.10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he would do to them. How they turned. I've heard so many people talk about a superficial repentance. Where does he say that's a superficial repentance? Where does it say that? It may have been. I don't know. But, you know, and I ask for that clarification because it's hard for me to believe that 120,000 of the most evil people on the planet could actually have hearts of stone that turn to hearts of flesh. It's hard to believe that. But that's, that's, that there's a transformation, you know, and how hard is it even as an individual to believe that that miracle happens, right? Like, kids in the room, I don't know if your parents did this, but, like, when you got in trouble with your sibling and you were, like, fighting... And the last thing you had to do after you had talked with your parents was like, okay, you need to go hug your brother and sister and tell them you're sorry. It was like, actually, could you just chop off my hand or something instead? I would rather not do that. Like, that's, because it hurts to admit you're wrong. And so you want, you don't, you don't want to be wrong. You're like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll endure the punishment. Just give me, I don't want to admit I'm wrong. You're in, you think you're right about something. You're going in a direction. It's hard to say like, okay. Yeah, you know, that thing, that decision I made, now that was wrong. I need to act in a different way. But what repentance is, is that you are headed in one direction with your whole life. Repentance, what we see in the Bible, is you're headed in one direction your whole life. Living for yourself, living for some other reason. You're going headlong in that direction, and you think that is the right way. And that God takes a stone heart, he transforms it, and he says, no, that's, that way's wrong. And then, miraculously, he turns your life from saying, that was right, This is all this direction is right, to saying... Whoa, I can't go in this direction anymore. Everything I knew was wrong. I need to go in this direction. I need to follow the Lord. That's a, a change that's miraculous on any scale, whether it's one person or 120,000 people. And that's the miracle that we see happening in Nineveh, that they repent and they call out to God. Then the most miraculous thing that happens in Nineveh is that God relents of his anger. That God doesn't do the, the thing that, that the Ninevites deserve to have happen. That's a just God, right? Right? And so the Nineveh deserved to be obliterated. Did it not? You know, everybody in there deserved to be obliterated. So when God relents of his anger, does God just say, ah, no big deal. You know what? Now that you're sorry, I'll just let it go. God doesn't change and he, he is always right and always good and always just. And so wrath to him doesn't just evaporate. It doesn't just dis disappear. Because we are all deserving of wrath. He can't just, it, it doesn't just go away because he's so perfect and so good. He ha That means he has to deal with your sin, our sin. Either by punishing you in his wrath or by punishing his son. So I have to believe if he relented of his wrath, that his, that wrath was put on Christ. And that's the most miraculous thing, that he could take wrath that those enemies of God deserve and put it on Christ. And that's a miraculous thing as I look out and I see believers in this crowd 
that we can relate with that, that as you look around, there are hundreds of people in this room that deserve the wrath of God to be obliterated by it. But by God's grace, we will see each other in glory someday because God has relented of his anger towards us. That God is more gracious and more merciful than you can imagine. That if you have a context for God's grace, it can be larger. It can be more powerful than you imagine it. That God's grace is unfathomable. And that's the greatest miracle that we see in Jonah 3. That miracle of the gospel is the point of this book. And we can't blow by that. That's got to be the main thing we focus on. But I think there's more to even learn. There's definitely more to learn as we look at the book of Jonah. There's two people I want us to look at that we can learn how they respond to the gospel. Jonah and the king of Nineveh. I'm going to teach everybody a word. I'm sure many of you know it, but for the kids in the room, I want you to think about this. Have you ever been to the, like a jewelry store, walk by a jewelry store in a mall, or maybe in Walmart they have one? Anybody who's walked by a jewelry store before, you know what I'm saying? So, what, usually you got the, you got the diamond, it's maybe elevated up above the rest of the counter, and underneath it, there's like a, maybe it's like a navy or a black cloth. You guys know what I'm talking about. Think about if that cloth was white underneath the diamond. You'd kind of be like looking in the glass, like, what is that diamond? I can't really see what that looks like. I, I can't get a good picture. It's white behind it. I, I, it just blends in. I can't see it. But jeweler, what jewelers do in order to make that diamond pop is they put a black surface behind it. So that you can see all the little details and all the little, the beauty of the diamond in all these special ways. That is called juxtaposition. Juxtaposition where you got something, two things that are very different so that you can learn, you can see the difference. You can, the point of them being put next to each other and compared with each other so you can see how different those two things are. And the Bible does this a lot. The Bible does it in ways to show how good good things are and how bad bad things are by comparing good things and bad things. Things that God loves, things that God does not love. And right there, here's a comparison. Jonah and the king of Nineveh. Their reactions to, to, to what's going on in Nineveh. So, and Jonah actually invites us to compare. Actually, if you look in Jonah 2, 2, 2 8 and 9, as he's praying in the bottom of the well, he says this. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's saying, those people, they do this thing. I do something different. I'm way different than them. And he, as we read this, we're invited to compare Jonah and the Ninevites. So let's compare him. Let's compare him and the king. Let's see first how they each respond when God senses, shows that he's, he's angry or displeased with, with what these guys are doing. So Jonah 1.6, Jonah is on the ship, 
and the waves are crashing around it. That boat is being torn to pieces, and he's asleep. But he knows full well why the ship is being torn to pieces. It's because of him. He's not crying out to God. He's sleeping. The pagan sailor has to come wake him up. He's like, cry out to God. Maybe we'll be saved. Jonah 1 9. They find out it's him. How does he respond? He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He kind of gives himself a little bit of props there almost. Like, oh, you don't know who I am? Oh, I, I'm an Israelite. I serve the Lord God, the real God, the one who serves. They're like, when they realize he's serving the real God, they're like, what have you done? And he doesn't respond. This is, he, they say, what should we do? They, they panic, and they're, they're trying to figure out. He says, just throw me in the water. He tries to kill himself by going and getting thrown in the water. And that still has an, at zero, no point, still not saying, yeah, I need to cry out to God. He's not doing that. He is sinking down to the bottom of the ocean. He is wrapped up in the seaweed. He's drowning. And at the last second, a giant fish eats him. In his prayer, inside the giant fish, nowhere in Jonah 2, nowhere do you see him say, yeah, I did something wrong. I shouldn't have gone to Tarshish. I, Lord, I, I don't be angry with me because I am being disobedient and rebellious against you. No point. No point does he do that. The sailors do that. They pray, they pray right away. Let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on his innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Jonah doesn't do that. He never cries out, Lord, don't destroy me right now for doing something that displeases you. Nothing. Nowhere in the book of Jonah do we see him offer that prayer. What about the king? The moment the word reaches the king, in 3.6, it says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he removed his robe, and he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Why would the king have been sitting on a throne? Show he's in control, right? He rules the city of Nineveh. He's in control of one of the greatest cities in the Assyrian Empire. He's got a lot of power, a lot of sway. Why have you been wearing a robe? Because he's a king. People honor him. People bring him gifts. He's, he's a big deal. He's got, he's got this great robe to show, yeah, I'm, I'm the top dog in Nineveh. But when he hears the word of the Lord and he's convicted, right away, what happens? He gets off of the throne and he takes off the robe. Because, I mean, it doesn't lay this out specifically, but what good is his power? Yeah, he's king of Nineveh, but the God of heaven is crying out against him. What, what's he going to do? How's he going to fight back against the God of heaven? When he realizes that he's angered the true God, he gets off of his throne because his own power, his status as the king of Nineveh, it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter. His robe, what, what is this false honor going to do for him. Now, Jonah, he's constantly puffing himself up and talking about how great he is and putting on this false front of this false honor for everybody to see. The king, he takes it off right away. He goes and sits in sackcloth and ashes. He says, I'm doomed. Without, without the Lord 
intervening in this situation, we are doomed. Who knows, maybe he will save us. Like, his response is out of humility. And when we, too, like the king or Jonah, when we, you know, something we can learn from this comparison is when you're moved by the gospel, you should see in and of yourself absolutely no power and no honor, no right before God. That in and of yourself, there's nothing that you can be able to stand and say, yeah, I'm basically a good person, or yeah, I'm okay on my own. Your, your, your false honor of whatever it may be, maybe it's, you know, I, I'm a respectable businessman, or, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a really good kid. You know, I obey my parents. I'm not like them. You know, all of that gets, it's worthless when it comes, you and I, just like the Ninevites and just like Jonah and just like everybody else on this planet needs to be humble before God and recognize I don't have what it takes. On my own, there's nothing. And, and be humbled to know your need before God. Secondly, in comparison, we can see how they told people about God. We've already looked at Jonah a little bit, right? But he goes on one day journey into a city that's three days across. And what does he cry out? He calls out, yet 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. But if you look at similar situations, the only real similar situation in the Bible is in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, this evil, evil city is going to be obliterated and ends up being obliterated by the wrath of God because they're so evil. But Abraham, the man of God, he, the, one who said, the one who received the message that the city's going to be destroyed, he says, let me just go in and see if there's some righteous people. Let me see if there's someone who you could spare in your mercy. And he goes in time and time again to go see if there's anybody in that city. He's pleading with the Lord to have mercy on some people in the city somehow. And he fails. He can't find righteous people. And the city's obliterated. Jonah has none of that similarity. He's not, he's not going in. He's not honestly, at least that's not what we see, right? What does he do? He goes one day's journey into a city that it takes three days to get across. It's not coincidence that those two you know, measurements are right back. It says he goes one day in and the city's three days across. That's not an accident that's recorded back-to-back that's showing that Jonah did not go all the way through the city. That's what we know. And what he proclaimed was simple. You're going to be destroyed. He, there was no plea for them to receive mercy, and that's clear. We can see that's not what he wanted from Jonah 4. We know that. But the king, he takes this proclamation, and he sends it out to everyone. He sends all of his servants. He says, make sure everyone knows this right now. Have everyone put on sackcloth and ashes. Let them mourn. Let them realize they are doomed without God. And he takes it, he kicks it up a notch too. He says, don't let anyone eat or drink. Not anyone, not even the livestock. Don't let them eat or drink. Cover them in the sackcloth and ashes too. Don't let them eat or drink. This is what it says. Yeah, he says, let neither man nor beast, nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Can you imagine? I have a, I have a two-year-old daughter, Charlotte, 
And she's got like a two-minute span when she needs food or water that she is going from Mama Eat to and it's like collapsing on the ground, totally unraveled. But these people, all of them, from the least to the greatest, are calling out to God. There's a total fast. So it's not just your stomach that's grumbling. Your, the kids are crying, wailing out. Give me food! Give me food! They probably don't understand what, exactly what's going on. The donkey's outside, hee-hawing. There's like a vocal, you can hear the people crying out to God. And this is an example of a fast. And you know what? A fast, we, we practice fasting, or we should, we should strive to practice fasting. It's something I've been learning about. A fast is not just so you could feel pain, not just so that everybody can be crying about how hungry you are. You know, I, I was reminded that when it talked about the Pharisees praying or fasting so that everybody can see, that when, the, when they pray or fast so that everybody can see, they says they have received their reward in full. So as you pray or fast, you're not seeking pain, but you're seeking reward. What's the reward they're seeking? How can that, what's the point of not eating or drinking? It's this. Saying, if you have any hunger or thirst, don't waste them feasting on food. Don't waste them. We need God so desperately that every ounce of hunger and thirst in this day needs to be dedicated to calling out mightily to him. Mightily is the word, the key word. That means as powerfully as we possibly can. With every ounce in us, we need to call out to God. See, the king doesn't take the proclamation and just say, yep, we're doomed. Oh, well. Write your notes and say goodbye. He, calls, he says, if there's any possible way that, that, that this God can show us mercy, we are going to, as a city, respond in that way. We are going to waste every, we are going to use every bit of our effort and hunger and thirst to call out to God. You know, and that reminds me, that makes me think, in, in my proclamation, how desperate am I for people to know about the Lord? Yeah, I, I am guilty of often thinking, okay, I've shared the gospel with this person. So, God, you saw that? We're, we're both, we understand that I shared that? Okay, good, thanks. I don't have to do that again. More like, okay, I'm like clean conscience, washed hands, I'm fine. How desperately do I want that person to actually know what I'm communicating a lot of the time? Rather than just absolving myself of God's, the, this inner guilt I feel. Is my heart, in a, in, is my heart more like Jonah's where I'm just going in because a fish swallowed me up and spat me and I guess I have to do this. You know, I've, Mark's been talking a lot about sharing the gospel guess that in order to stop feeling guilty every Sunday, I should finally say something to my coworker. I'm not saying that, that you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's how we feel, but I, I, you know, I, like I said, I struggle with this personally that I often think of it more of checking a box than I do in earnestly wanting somebody's heart to change. But that's, that's the heart that knows how much we need to call out to God. And I think our prayer life reflects that as well. In our, in our personal lives, how, how, do, how are we 
you know, proclaiming the gospel to each other or proclaiming the gospel in our prayers, how often do you call out to God mightily, understanding that even now, as you know him, or maybe you don't, but as you, if you do know him, are you calling out to him and continually expressing that? Or is it something you take for granted? God desires a heart like the king of Nineveh here. And we can learn from that to mightily call out to God with what we have, the hunger and thirst that we have, with the life that we have in us, to call out to him mightily and recognize our dependence on him. What about their knowledge? That's something else we can learn. We can see and compare. What do they know about God? The king says this in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king does not know what will happen. He knows nothing about God. It even describes them as people who do not know their right hand from their left. I just used my left hand to describe my right and my right hand to describe my left. Ironically. And that was not intentional. Um, but they, they don't know. They don't know what will happen. They don't know anything about God. They've been, they worship their pagan gods. They, they don't know. What does Jonah know about God? Jonah has a greater understanding of how gracious God is than probably you or I do. Because while it comes as a surprise or we find ways to talk about how this probably wouldn't happen or that this may not be accurate or that we may not be understanding it or there may be some loophole that we don't know about where this didn't actually happen the way we this recorded scripture jonah doesn't have that he says in verse two he says and he prayed to the lord and said oh lord is this not what i said when i was yet in my country that i made haste to flee to tarshish for I knew you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Who knew? Who knew that the 120,000 people would be relented of? That God would relent of his anger? Who knew that, that God would show them grace? It was Jonah. Jonah knew. He had that understanding. That's how mind-blowing his understanding of God's grace was. He did not underestimate God to think that God couldn't do that. He just didn't like it. I mean, and we, we can be so consumed with learning more and learning more. And there's a good friend of mine, he said to me one time, people can be so confused between Christian what real Christian maturity is. Is Christian maturity filling our heads continually more with knowledge? Or is it using our knowledge and what we know or to, to express and grow our dependence and our need for God? If you build up your head with knowledge, but don't know, don't grow in your need for God, that knowledge is worthless. If it doesn't result in greater love and dependency on God, it's worthless. Because there's one person here who cried out to God and God relented against them. And there's one person here who never cries out to God. And it's the guy who knows everything about God's grace. In our lives, does our knowledge that we build up on a continual basis result in us pursuing more hastily and more needily the power of God in our lives? 
knowledge for knowledge's sake is puffed up. That's what the Bible says. So, I know my heart has been challenged in this. And I can see in almost every way how I relate with Jonah. I, I'm, that's, it's genuine. I really do relate with Jonah in a lot of ways. How might you relate? How might we relate together? Is it uh, this false sense of righteousness? Do we hide behind stuff and make ourselves look better? I mean, a great way to see if, if you don't really believe in, if we don't really believe in our need for God like we should, do you, do you build up a false sense where you're hiding what's really going on in your life, sin that you're really struggling with, and putting forward a, a facade of like, yeah, everything's good, everything's fine, uh, I don't struggle in that. You know, I'm I'm a I'm I'm one of those good Christian guys or ladies that doesn't doesn't struggle in many ways at all. Or maybe if we do confess something, it's it's something that's much more acceptable to confess. Like I lied the other day, or I didn't share the gospel, or my reading hasn't been that good. But once really struggling the darkness of our sin in our own heart and our need for God to continually change us. We're not willing to admit it because we don't really want to think about it. We don't want to depend on God like that. We would rather have this false image of righteousness much like Jonah. That's one way God's convicted me. What about your proclamation? Again, are you you more checking the box? Are you just doing what you think you need to do in order to get this kind of sense of guilt away? Or are you earnestly pursuing people to make sure they know Jesus? Because they, you know how much they need him. And what about our proclamation to each other in singing? As you sing, as we sing, are we more concerned about expressing joy and bringing glory to God? Or are we more concerned that the person next to us doesn't distract us? Are we more concerned about the, the, the sound of the music or the way it's performed? I mean, are, are we concerned with the right things? Is our heart in the right spot? Are we more concerned about building up heaps of knowledge and using that to show our Christian maturity than we are in growing in more in love and need for God? What what does our prayer life look like? Do, Do we look like a people who's calling out mightily to God with what we have within us? These are things I'm thinking about and we genuinely need to think about. And you know what? When we look at Jonah 3, all of us, we should not walk away like, man, yeah, I really need to share the gospel more. Or, man, yeah, I really need to stop being so fake. Or, yeah, I need to do this or that. That's not the response we need to have. That's all superficial change and it's not... That doesn't, again, that doesn't make us right. The only thing that's going to change us is if we continually come to Jesus and realize how much more we need him together. Our attitude has to be one of, Lord, show us how much we need you. Lord, let us see Jesus as more great and his work as more miraculous expand our minds of how much we need you and how much you are sufficient. 
Show us more how great your grace is in ways that we can't imagine. We need hearts that are not seeking superficial change or moralistic responses, but a heart that's seeking Jesus and his spirit, the only one who's able to work that in us. Maybe you are here this morning and you are not someone who's putting on a facade because you don't know the Lord. Maybe you don't. I'm not sure what circumstance will bring you here, but I would know that wherever you are, if you're if you feel like, man, I'm too far from the Lord, I could never be changed, this could never really happen to me. God's shown you here. You don't believe that, but it's true. I I can change you. I have the, I can. I absolutely can. That he has the power to transform your life. And to to spare you of wrath, that is, I am sure you you do deserve and it is coming. Unless you know Jesus. So I'd ask you to believe. To repent. And to experience the immense grace of God this morning. To live in freedom from that wrath. Let me pray for us. And we can sing now.